to Views and Voice Above the Noise. I am Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast. We can joke that Minnesota is no longer the land of predominantly white people and white food. Our populations are changing and providing our state with a rich buffet of cultures, languages, foods, and experiences. Recently, I had the pleasure of interviewing John Landgard, superintendent of Worthington Public Schools. John and his district have made the news at least twice this summer, once in Min Post on July 23, 2018, and also in the Star Tribune on July 28th. Because Worthington is one of 27 districts in the state where white students are the minority. In fact, Worthington was the first district in greater Minnesota where that happened. Worthington is a town of over 13,000 people in southwestern Minnesota, sitting on the Iowa border and one small county away from South Dakota. It's an area known for agribusiness among many other industries. There are over 3,000 students in the schools and that population is growing. The Hispanic population is the largest group in the schools, although over 30 languages are spoken by students. I thought John's experience in this 21st century district would be interesting. Plus, at an MASA board meeting this spring, he expressed a wish that high schools could change, which is a topic I personally find fascinating. When asked, he graciously agreed to be interviewed. What you'll hear from John are the words of a man with a rich background of experiences from being a math teacher and coach to becoming a superintendent for the last 25 years, 15, in Worthington. You will hear the words of a systems thinker who isn't afraid of taking a risk, who incorporates changes to stay current, but who does not just do something because it is the latest thing to do. He believes in marrying wisdom with adventure, he recognizes the need to keep what is good and valuable, yet ventures into areas to shape an unknown future. John begins by describing his school population. When I started in this district 15 years ago, we were 35% diverse. This last year, and we bounced between 68 and 70%. Our elementary is actually 74% diverse. So... Um, we're going to kind of stabilize in that range. Is that's, that largely Hispanic? Um, that's the majority, but we have 31 different languages spoken in our school district, with not counting all the additional dialects. So, um, you know, our diversity, we employ three full-time Hispanic translators, and then probably 40 on-call interpreters as well as we utilize a, a phone interpretation when we can't get a real live person in the room. Having different populations demands different types of programming. Well, I, I think when you have a changing population uh, in, your, in your district, such as the increase of language, you also then have that increased um, need for additional support. So when I started 15 years ago, we had a half a dozen EL teachers. We now employ 30. And our whole English learner, identified learners, you know, we're in that 900 range, which is close to a third of our total population. So one of the biggest pieces that we continually work with is having the right support mechanisms in place and I just told the lady here earlier, 
we interviewed an AP five years ago and she had done her homework on the district and she said, I can't believe all the additional resources and support pieces you have in place compared to a lot of other districts. Like what? Um, it might be Read 180 for kids, um, paraprofessionals, EL teachers, so we decrease that number that they're working with, um, other technology support programs that will help fluency and development in a quicker manner. In your community ed program, do you have any resources where even the teachers from the schools go out into homes and work with parents? We do. We have parent liaisons, um, parent advocates, and of course with our uh, integration collaborative, we have some of those support mechanisms as well for that. And so our community ed program is a huge asset in supporting not only our families, um, but even our children and what we do for programming. So, Are there adults who don't speak English that come to classes through the community or the schools somehow? We do. We have adult language classes. We have citizenship classes, um, which most community ed do, but we have it on a much bigger, broader. And the way we run some of our preschool programming we run it in conjunction with the adult programming, so it's a, a family education type approach. So when kids are in preschool, parents are in class as well. Not only is Worthington providing programming for the current students, but they are thinking in the future by trying a program of growing your own teachers. And here's what John has to say about that program. They were in the process of developing a teacher, um, what I'll call grow your own program. We're in collaboration with Minnesota West and SMSU. And, and Minnesota West is what, community uh, college? Community college. And so the nice part is we're hoping to offer one to four classes to our high school. Introduction to education was the first one we offered for 20 kids last year. And we're hoping they'll have anywhere from three to 12 credits when they graduate. They can go out to Minnesota West and finish their two years completion degree. And SMSU is willing to come down here and actually teach the other two years. And because of cultural barriers, sometimes kids aren't able to travel to a campus, live on campus. And in our community, we have engineers and professors and other individuals that have multiple degrees from other countries, but yet they should be able to enter the world of work and teach, and they can for a variety of reasons. Um, so those people could potentially enter into this teacher program as well. So we're building this Grow Your Own program, and there's two things. One, we're hoping to create teachers that will emulate our student body, but also um, solve some of the teacher shortages. We actually, the Swift, Founda Swift Foundation we're working with and McKnight Foundation as part of our um, planning and once we get to implementation and then self-sustaining. Oh, I'm thrilled. I've been bouncing this one off the wall about six years and I finally got some traction. A year of work 
just getting to where we're at now. We're just beginning the high school piece, so last year was our first class. We'll have kids this year and hopefully then begin to expand the offerings. And I suspect the college will start a year from now with theirs and hopefully we can draw in some of those adults who have degrees that want to explore becoming teachers. Worthington is a great place. We started talking about things that would help us change education as we know it. And one of the things people often say is that we don't stop doing anything. We don't talk about that. We always start new things and don't stop. I asked John what it is that he thought we could stop doing. One of my biggest frustrations is the rules, the mandates, the regulations and things. fact that what's in place is creating barriers for local education institutions to meet the needs of our, our population now. And adding more requirements or standards or laws does not allow us to provide better education. Realistically, those who are sitting and making those decisions need to listen more to educators on how we can correct some of those barriers and challenges. You don't quit talking about it and you have to provide the leadership. The reality is if they aren't willing to listen, you're never going to get it to happen. So what, what's the role of asking for forgiveness instead of permission? Is there well, a way you can do that? Sometimes you can. What are some of the things that get in our way? Well, I, I think one of the big things is we need to start to get some of the things out of the way. Uh, our um, The elementary teachers in our system will tell you they can't continue to do all the things they're required to do of filling out reports and X because they have no time to teach. And it's the biggest frustration. Elementary teachers know what to teach, but all that other paperwork and other stuff gets in the way of their teaching. And then we wonder why educators leave early or leave to go do something else. So at the elementary, that's one of the biggest things. I think at the, at the middle school, junior high level, we put requirements in there. If you look all the way down the system, we require more of it at an earlier age mm -hmm. than in some respects they're even capable of, of learning or handling. I mean, when... Like algebra, you mean? Like algebra is a great example. <laughs> and, you know, there are ways to teach algebra to younger age kids but not the entire subject. And that's where I think we're struggling of our current standards. In this state and across the country, we determine what the minimum standards are gonna be and test for that level versus a continually moving target, the better off our country will be. Because our goal needs to be, here's the minimum level, and we have kids that could meet that at sixth grade and we have kids that it'll, it'll take them till their seniors to meet that but until we establish that that's why when they had the basic skills test years ago that was great a lot of people hate it but it was the right thing now the mcas are the wrong thing and we test the heck out of kids i and and i have less concern about the world's best workforce because i think it 
has forced districts to put all their plans in one spot and start to focus. I don't agree with everything that's a part of that, and I think it's just another report to do that gets shelved till the next time you have to do it. But I think it has focused us on, in particularly in our district, our continuous improvement plans, where we're headed as a district, not only academically, but operationally, at least in our district, that's what it's done. So I'm not totally opposed to the world's best workforce. It's just, I don't like this regulatory factor. It was supposed to be a one and a half page summary document. Now it's become a monster. And again, you can't keep changing the test and you can't keep changing to get accurate data. The data out there to me, for the most part, is invalid. Uh, it's frustrating when I tell teachers they have to work with data. So we try and work with that continual growth. And I have not run into an educator that can't tell me a kid is growing or not. What's the value of what we're doing testing? Our, uh, at one point, our district had 77 days of testing. And, and kids are tired of testing. I, I know kids I've talked to. I have one tell me this year, oh, I just made a design. There's one other way, and of course we'll get dinged, but you just tell all your parents to opt out. You do like the Lakeville district and you become an innovative district and you just don't have to do that. Those are the th things that we struggle in educationally with the systems that we have in place. And we every legislative session, if you look at the last legislative session, mm -hmm. there were over 100 new potential mandates coming our way. And I made the comment, and again, I've been at this a long time, I just assume they meet every other year. At least I have a year just to get my feet on the ground. You've mentioned rules and regs and laws as being barriers to doing what we need to do. Some people see the increasing diversity as an increasing problem to doing what we need to do. What's your comment? A lot of people see the changing populations as a potential negative. You know, I, I don't see it that way. I see it as a positive. My daughter could my oldest daughter could elaborate constantly on the value and the best part of her education was this culturally diverse global representative school and her ability to work with multiple people and she saw it both at the college and currently what she's doing now where some people struggle with that. She doesn't have those struggles and she has friends that come from all walks of life and again people see those as you can't put a value on that you can't define that but our kids yeah there's some kids that do see color, see color. Mm -hmm. the majority of our kids don't we have great kids in our district they interact well they're very active together and most of our potential problems that exist for us might be two girls having issue with each other based on looking at you the wrong or boyfriends or whatever. I would stack our student body behavior wise and act up against any. We have great kids. I have no fear of ever taking anyone into our buildings and not them being respected and 
being safe. I like it. They're wonderful people. Uh, you know, every culture, every background has their pluses and minuses. But I, I even see myself, you know, where I would have been in a big city and walking down, I may have been apprehensive. I'm not so much anymore. I'm still guarded with because you're in a big city, but not because somebody's black or white or, or whatever. Um, because there's a lot of neat people and they have a lot to offer. And I grew up around migrant workers because I grew up in northwest Minnesota as part of the Sugar Beet. Used to play baseball with a young man that was a good friend of mine, and he came from Texas every year. I've been somewhat exposed all the way through my life. At an MASA board meeting, John made the comment that he didn't know if he would live to see major high school reform. I asked him if he thought high schools today were outdated. I think they are. Um, you know, we have this traditional model that hasn't changed for years and years and years. And in some respects, it's lecture and, and kids take notes and they regurgitate things. I've seen more of the change happen on that now with the, the approach to hybrid or the reverse okay. teaching models that have helped to change some of that educational. It's not the lecture, internalized repeat type, which still happens in my view at the college level way too much. But when I, when I talk about how schools need to change and how we need to function better, I believe strongly in teaching kids how to be accountable for themselves. And so it isn't the structure that they show up at 8 o'clock and they're done at 3 o'clock, particularly as they get to be a senior. They need to have the flexibility and understanding of managing themselves. So when they potentially either go into the world of work, they know how to show up for work on time, or they go to a two-year, four-year school and you need to be in class. And oh, by the way, if you choose not to be in class, there's consequences for that, whether it's you didn't get the material or whatever. Um, but you don't have to sit in a desk to learn everything. And that's where I think we're making a mistake at the high school level. Yes, the freshmen need a lot more structure to help them get that. They need a little less structure at the sophomore level. And by the time they're juniors and seniors, they need to be starting to learn those soft skills, which is the biggest problem that employers have with them. They can train somebody to do the job that they're doing, but the soft skills, they have a hard time training. And we don't teach kids how to manage their soft skills at an early age, how to work with another individual, how to be to work on time and, and actually have pride in your work and how you do that. And, and we don't do enough with that with kids in high school. So I think redesign when I'm talking about what high schools need to look like, they need to have a combination of some traditional coursework, hybrid coursework, service coursework, and the flexibility to come and go as they need to as they get to that senior age level. One of the planks of the MASA legislative platforms was to allow districts to have more local control over what credits determine graduation. Do you agree with that idea? 
when they keep adding social studies requirements and they keep adding other requirements for standards that we need to accomplish, we're not determining on that on the local level. And they say we can determine the number of credits we graduate a kid with, but yet they won't give us the flexibility to determine what that is. Graduation requirements are set by the state of Minnesota, plus schools are squeezed by colleges and universities by what they demand for admission. Probably a flaw in our system. Colleges dictate some of the things they're doing, what we're doing in our schools and how they get accepted, and I don't agree with it. And oh, by the way, my frustration is colleges are the slowest organization to change anything. And yeah, very resistant is exactly. So my frustration is they dictate some of the things to us that are part of the barriers to us changing our system. College admissions are one thing, but another concern of some administrators is whether colleges and universities are keeping up with the preparation needs for our new teachers. Learners are different. Instructional strategies are different. Technological resources change quickly, and not every district has the same resources. At one point in time, we had great graduates coming out that were well-trained and doing well. I'm starting to get a little concerned again. Online is great to a point, but I'm sorry, there needs to be face-to-face -face conversations that occur, and I'm a face-to-face -face individual. To hide behind a keyboard nowadays, whether it's Facebook or some other format or platform, it's easy to say what you want to say and not worry about it and have to defend it in a in a face-to-face -face conversation. We talked earlier about whether or not high schools were outdated. What about the diploma? Is that still a value? Graduation diploma still needs to exist, and I put a lot of value on those things. As I've explained to my own kids, once you get a degree, nobody can take it away from you. And that's your validation that you've accomplished something very important in your life. So the same goes, in my view, for a high school. But I think we need to redefine what we need to have kids as a basic education. they got to have that basic element that exists, and maybe that's through middle school. But the reality of it is, at the high school, there needs to become this whole broader exploratory to hit the soft skills, to hit. So if you're going to go into an ag field, you ought to be able to tie your horticulture class with your English class. And potentially, if you're doing auto mechanics type work, you also can tie some of your math skills to it. And those pieces of the puzzle can all be there. We need to do a better job of structuring our high schools so kids are getting not only English with math or English with an ag course. And you can do it in the same amount of time and you can get a lot of credit. I saw coursework at one school where kids are doing building a house, but the English teacher was incorporating their English along with that so that they were able to express themselves orally in written language and getting the needs they needed for that language arts as well as developing a skill for lifetime. 
So how would the course offerings and the structure change beginning with ninth grade? I think for the most part, coursework, you still have to have probably your standard English, math, science type curricular elements, but then you need to look at some of the, well, and I better put history, government, or whatever you put in there. The four basics of core Sorry. subjects, I would say. <laughs> and we actually run a freshman seminar type, which is required for them, um, so they get to explore careers and where they may want to head. We put in uh, the standard electives of FIAD and FACS and all those opportunities, um, and it gets broader as you get older. In some cases, kids actually could be done mid-year, their senior year, but they don't want to be, nor are some ready to be. I was one of those seniors, I probably wasn't ready to be done. I, I think that coursework at a freshman level needs to be your basic core. Then you start to change that and integrate it as they get to be. So when you're a junior, you might have your English tied to some of your science curriculum or what, or your ag curriculum. So you're you're getting both credits at one time. So what about 10th grade? Well, I, I think you're still in those four basic core areas, but at, after I'd start looking to change that at junior and senior level. So allowing kids to move into that potential field or careers, and you have to build it so it looks uh, as multiple tracks for them. Um, you can't pigeonhole them in business or ag or something. They have to be able to cross over and have those experiences. And one of the biggest problems we have is music. When you build a schedule, music becomes a difficult thing. It has always been a problem. So coursework at a sophomore level is your four basics in an expanded curricular uh, elective program that gets them into some of these areas where you can build that, build that understanding and start building those soft skills. Would you uh, ever say that kids could, as a junior and senior, that they could pick certain classes and could demonstrate mastery and be done with the course, not necessarily assigned to a semester that we know. So what if some kids really worked hard and got it done in a month, and they would, would they earn the credit? Or some kids might take longer? If a kid can master the content, why do we force them to sit there? I mean, that's, that's the biggest problem. I can give you an example of a young lady who went to school here, and our math teachers had a very traditional style. You gotta sit, you gotta do your homework, well, due to family reasons, the young lady couldn't get all her homework done, but she got A's and B's on her test. And you know, the thing was, she knew the content, but they wanted to dock her based on not getting her homework done. Well, if you take a look at the family issues that were causing her not to get her homework done, shouldn't even have a homework, shouldn't even have a factor. I think there's a place for some homework, but homework is one of the biggest detriments to kids' excitement about education there is. Not only should we allow more flexibility and responsibility for our students, but the same is also true for our professional staff. When it comes to our teachers, we hold them, we try and hold them to a time frame of when they're supposed to be at work and not. In some respects, I don't think that's the right way as professionals. We do two days of professional de development part of their growth and development plan, where it totals about, I think about five hours a year. They're on their own. 
they have to document it as part of their growth and development plan. We don't dictate it. We don't dictate when they do it. And when one o'clock comes, they're done for the day. Now they can stay and do it at that time period or they can do it whenever. They're professionals in my view. Why should I babysit them? We have a dilemma. Educators talk about more flexibility and more local control, yet our funding stream from the state remains the dictator of how we receive money. To have butts in seat, but that's how we get paid. That's how the accountability factor is. But we can change that. Oh, absolutely, and that's why I, I, that's one of my frustrations of you have to have X amount of time in the seat, and it's, oh, by the way, in law, X amount of minutes, kids have to be in school in order for a district to get paid. It isn't about that mastery element we talked about. What is the purpose of standards? If that is truly what kids need to know, shouldn't we be paid when the kids have mastered those standards, not when how old they are and how many hours they put their butts in a seat? Absolutely. There's your accountability factor. And that makes no sense. That's a huge disconnect, and I think it would save the state money. Well, I think it would, and, and, and potentially it even would help pay for those kids when they go on to a two-year school. Why not pay based on when kids master that course? We use MCAs to measure what kids know. However, these tests do not measure the soft skills. Absolutely, and it's, in my view, stifles the innovation, creativity of individuals. You know, that's, that's the piece that's missing in society now. We wouldn't even have computers if two guys weren't creative and innovative, and they weren't looking to get rich. They were... That was their wheelhouse, and they were excited to be doing it. We know that soft skills and content are learned in the context of relationships. And that's part of our problem. Our staffs have to deal with all the standard and the content that they feel they have to push to kids, where they have a hard time making connectivities with kids. We need to establish better relationships with our kids and that's part of that high school experience and soft skill development. So how do we start change? Well, I, I think the starting point is through your organizations and through talking to legislators. The first thing we, get, we have to get them to understand is you can't keep pushing things as. We need to look at things differently. And there needs to be, I don't even want to say task force, but we need... We needed to have groups of people talking about how we can make our system stronger and better and adjust it. And we can't let sports and the colleges dictate to us. How do we get organizations to change? I don't know if I have that answer. I've had conversations with multiple people numerous times, and sometimes I feel like I'm running into a brick wall all the time. But I... I I think it's about having conversations, it's about trying to move the needle, and everybody's so busy in their real world. I used to say in my job I'd have certain periods of time as a superintendent where they were down points, or I can't even find time to go on vacation because I'm dealing with referendums, or I'm dealing with employee issues, or I'm or trying to hire, or setting the schedule. It, there's not a the downtime doesn't exist anymore. And it's partly due to all the additional mandates and requirements and reporting that we have to do.
in most districts, I can't imagine being in a small district anymore because I don't know who does all that work. I mean, whether it's square footage reports or the world's best workforce, I have help here to get those things done. Even though I have some fingers in all of it, I have help. They don't have help in those small districts. And all of those reports probably don't improve the education you offer your kids at all. No. At the state level, if they wanted to make one simple change, get a standardized student system for all of us to use. Pay for it. I, I mean, whether it's infinite campus or... I, I don't really care. And likewise, oh, by the way, let's get a standardized accounting system, whether it's smart finance or something else, and just pay for it at the state level. By the way, you could reduce our funding to us if you did that, because that's costing us money. I keep saying, even the teacher evaluation law that was passed, I think it really did a disservice to mandate what we were doing anyway, we were doing well. All it did is add a year and more problems to getting rid of a poor, poor educator. John has done what he's had to do, and yet he has been a risk taker as well. I can tell you in my entire career, and I've been now a superintendent for 25 years, I've always been a risk taker. I've always been out on the edge, and has it gotten me in some trouble? Yep. But I, when you do the whole balancing act, I've achieved more than the other side of the coin. And, you know, I can even equate it in this district. We've taken, the, in 15 years, the risk, particularly the last 10, and we've spent close to $30 million in technology buildings, mm -hmm. curricular areas that most districts would love to have. John has some final words for us all about how to stay engaged, not to get discouraged, and to keep on doing the job. I, I sometimes say the longer I'm in education, I think the dumber I get. But I, I, I'm proud of what I've been able to accomplish and changes I've been able to make based on being an administrator. And you know, I can even equate it back into being an educator when I was a teacher and coach. And I still have some of my kids sending me annually Christmas card. Any final words of wisdom for me? Um, you know, probably the, the biggest thing I want, because there's so many young administrators out there, and the biggest thing I could tell them, you've got a long career ahead of you, you've got a lot to work through, but don't quit being innovative and a change agent to move things forward. And don't be afraid of, of those tough challenges that are out there. Because you will get attacked, you will get, you just have to overcome and work through them. It just takes time. Yeah, I chuckle. Um, the referendum, we failed in 2018. And my wife made the observation, you know, I got the numbers, we had a bunch of people at our house. After I got the numbers, took a couple deep breaths, Went to my computer, started sending out to board members and everybody the communications that needed to be there. And my wife said, you didn't even get more than five minutes to pout or regroup. And I'm going, you, you can't be like that. It's not about me. And so the next morning I called the, our consultant we work with. And I said, 
I need you to do this, I need this information, I need you to do this, and I want to see these kind of numbers for this type of potential uh, next step. He said to me on the phone, he said, just a minute, I'm still pouting. I said, you don't have time to pout. Get off it, time's up, let's go. Um, I've got work to get done and get organized. So um, he called me yesterday and he said, I need one of those John Landgard time to quit pouting speeches. I said, how much do you want? Because I can fire up really easy. That's the part, it's never about the superintendent or the administrators. The focus is always going to be about the kids and oh by the way if you get a kick in the pants you got to turn around and get up and get moving. Thanks to John for sharing his ideas with us. His slogan of get up and get moving might even be a good logo for a t-shirt for Santa to put in John's stocking this Christmas. Dr. Seuss, my favorite philosopher, is busy getting ready for the opening of school, but I think John's words of get up and get moving are great closing words for us as we are gearing up for another school year. I hope everyone has a great year. This is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thanks for listening.